0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel Messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. That's where we're going to be together briefly this morning. Psalm 73. I do want to seize this opportunity to uh, just express my gratitude for the seminary and for the faculty here. I can honestly say that um, this place has been instrumental in forming my worldview and in forming my theology, and it goes all the way back to early childhood because uh, my dad is a proud alumnus of this institution, a uh, five-point McCuneite, and uh, <laughs> and and I benefited as a child from the instruction that he that he received in these classrooms and. To be able to get that direct instruction as well has been an incredible blessing. So I don't think I can overstate just what uh, level of impact this place has been in my life, and uh, I'm grateful for it. It's funny, um, you know, names like Compton and Combs and McCune and McCabe—they're probably not common household names, but they were common household names in my home, and uh, and it's just been a blessing to be able to be a part of this place the past six years. Psalm 73. Uh, we'll begin in verse 1. The psalmist says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I just want to stop there, and I want us to notice that, uh, as is common with many psalms, the psalmist is surfacing the very theme of the entire psalm in the very first passage. God is good to Israel. Now, Now, we're not Israel here today, but if I could draw some direct application... Uh, to us here today, I would say that God, that we, like Israel, are God's people, and so we can say with assurance that surely God is good to His people, and in fact, it's something that we say, it's something that we sing, it's something that we affirm, And, and yet, I believe if we're honest with ourselves, there are certain seasons in our lives, circumstances that cause us to really question this truth especially in a world when we see God's people suffer and his enemies are the ones who thrive. Just last September, Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, passed away at the ripe old age of 91 in the comfort of his multimillion-dollar mansion. He described himself as the boy who dreamed the dream making millions off of the lust of men and the objectification of women and using his platform to, to bring forth, the, to push forward the sexual revolution along with abortion rights and drug use. Truly a godless man who lived a life of comfort and luxury and prosperity and influence passing away at the ripe old age of 91. And about a month after his death, someone else passed away. Her name was Annabelle. But she wasn't 91. She was 14 years old. And she was gunned down by an armed gunman while she was worshiping in church, in a small church in Texas. Her along with 25 others, many of them kids, were killed just for going to church. You know, day after day, we, we see these things, and, and it causes us to question the goodness of God. But it's not just what we read in the headlines, right? It's also, in a very real way, what we experience in our own lives. Perhaps you're here, and, and even in the midst of your theological training, you are feeling the weight of a trial or discouragement or the pain of loss. And this statement that we say so much, at times rings hollow for us. And if that's you this morning, if I could just be an encouragement to you to know that you're not alone. and In fact, you stand in the company of many of God's children who face the same discouragement, one of which is our psalmist here this morning. I'd like to pick up immediately where we left off after he introduces the theme and states the goodness of God. Look at what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here in Psalm 70c, we witness a man in crisis. A man who in the face of what he sees and what he feels is questioning what he knows to be true. So I'd like to invite you this morning just to listen to this man's personal testimony to feel his frustration and his envy, and then watch and wonder as God takes this man from the depths of doubt to the heights of hope. And if He did it for him, He can do it for us. So let's begin with the spiritual crisis. What is it exactly that's causing our poet to to question the goodness of God? Well, I think simply stated, it's this, the wicked prosper and God's people suffer. Right? Right? Now, now let's just look at the the wicked and their prosperity. But before we even consider the extent of their prosperity, which, by the way, is abundant, first let's just look at the extent of their wickedness, which is equally as abundant, right? Look at how he describes these wicked people. They're violent. Verse 6, the second half of verse 6 says they clothe themselves with violence. Verse 7, from their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. But not only are they violent, they are incredibly arrogant and proud. Look at the beginning of verse 6. Pride is their necklace. Verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. And look at verse 11. And let the insolence and arrogance of this statement just sink in for a minute. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And yet in spite of their wickedness, see how they flourish they're healthy verses four and five describes them as people with no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they're free from common human burdens they're not plagued by human ills verse 10 we see that they're incredibly influential their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance and then the summary statement we see that they're wealthy and carefree verse 12 this is what the wicked are like always free of care They go on amassing wealth. He looked around and he saw that the wicked were living the dream. And and he wasn't just discouraged and troubled. He was jealous. Verse 3 says, he envied the arrogant. He wanted what the wicked had. But his inner struggle wasn't merely due to the wicked's prosperity. It was also due to his own suffering as one of God's people. Look with me, please, at verse 13. What a verse, by the way. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. 14, all day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. This man trusted God, and for what? For affliction after affliction. Notice the relentlessness of his suffering all day long. Every morning brings new punishment like the endless waves against the cliff, hit with sorrow after sorrow, so much that he throws up his hands and says, surely all of it in vain. And I think what compounds the burden of his plight is the psalmist's ever-present awareness of the scandal of his jealousy and doubt and the devastating effect that it could have on God's children. It's nothing short of betrayal, right? Look Look at verse 15. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. You know, I think as men devoted to the things of God and and no doubt often look to for biblical guidance and direction from God's people, it's easy for us to relate to this burden, isn't it? I think it's a sobering reminder that our words and our decisions and our sins always affect more than just ourselves. But can you relate to this man's pain? you've been working so hard to get through seminary and to support a family and to to work a job and to pay the rent and to pay down school debt. And for two years, you're just trying to get by. And after just scraping the bottom, you just feel so discouraged. Especially when you look around and you see people that you've grown up with who've walked away from God, who care nothing for His body, we're thriving. A comfortable 9-to-5 job, 401k, paid vacation, three-car garage, beautiful family. And in your heart, you're discouraged and you're jealous. How is God good to His people? Perhaps you and your spouse have prayed for for years for God to give you a child. A child that you could love and cherish and bring up In the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but after years of trying and, and heartbreaking miscarriages, God continues to say no, and it doesn't make sense because you look around at a world with with people, with a world filled with pregnancies that people don't even want, but you do, and God says no. You prayed for a spouse, you asked for a position, you pleaded for a cure. And God continues to say no. How is he good to his people? Have you been there before? Here we find this psalmist in a very low place. But thankfully, God in his mercy does not leave him there. Thankfully, this is not the end of his journey. For here in verse 17, we see a clear pivot in this man's downward trajectory from doubt to Towards faith, And what is it that is the crucial turning point in verse 17? Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Here in the midst of jealousy and doubt, he shows up in the sanctuary of God. When faced with jealousy and doubt, where do you run? Do you just run from your problem? Or do you run to God? Now, this sanctuary of God is not the church, but I think if I could draw an application, I think sometimes we have the tendency to think that when we are low and when we've had a bad week, that the last place to go is in the sanctuary of God, right? To be with his people. We somehow think that we have to, you know, be good enough to show up. We have to have a good week to fellowship but know that no one is too low to go to church. Don't let your weaknesses keep you from God. Let your weaknesses drive you to Him. He didn't feel like he had to clean himself up before he got ready and went. He showed up with the doubts and the fears and the jealousy, and he went to the sanctuary of God. Don't neglect the assembly. Now what I'd like to do is just identify three results from his visit to God's house. Three results from his visit to God's house that turn him from 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 sorrow and jealousy to hope and rejoicing. The first is this. The first result of entering God's house is he gains a new perspective. He gains a new perspective. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. There in the sanctuary of God, something drastically changed. But it wasn't his circumstances. It was his perspective. His jealousy melted away as he was reminded of the inevitable destiny of the wicked, as he remembered the justice of God. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Those, verse 20, jump into verse 27. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Yes, things aren't right. But God, the just and sovereign God, will make all things right, all in his perfect time. And it may not come in this life but it will come nonetheless. The wicked may prosper now, but their prosperity has one end, and that is destruction. And God's people may and do suffer now, but their suffering will end in glory. The lives of Hefner and dear Annabelle raise serious doubts about God's goodness and justice until we consider their ends, Hefner's prosperity ended in destruction, but Annabelle's suffering ended in glory. So he gains a new perspective. And number two, he realizes his ignorance. He realizes his own ignorance. Verse 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. See, here with a fresh perspective, he recognizes that his jealous thoughts and doubts are born out of an ignorance to the truth. Uh how many of you have seen that commercial, uh, that Gatorade commercial in the 90s called Be Like Mike? It was in the early 90s, and then it was kind of reborn later when they made their run. Well, Myself, as a child of the 90s, along with millions of others like me, wanted to be like Michael Jordan. In fact, he was uh, my role model as a kid as far as sports is concerned. And I had his jerseys, I had his posters, I had his cards. I even had his Michael Jordan cologne, which, I don't know, I probably just needed a bath and not cologne, but I'd spray that on so I could at least smell like him, right? And, uh, and, and you know, he was the one that I wanted to be like. Uh, unfortunately, his genetics would have it. <laughs> Bald is the only way that I am like <laughs> Michael Jordan. But, but, you know, a couple of years ago, he turned 50. And so I just decided, I think it was over one of the spring breaks, to read a big old fat biography on Michael Jordan called The Life, 700 pages. and After I got to the end of that, here, here's the, the biggest thing that stuck with me after I closed that book. I do not want to be like Michael Jordan. He was frustrated, proud bitter, terribly lonely. My my desire to be like Michael Jordan was simply a foolish ignorance to the truth. And you know, what the psalmist here realizes is that it doesn't matter how wealthy and healthy and popular and powerful they are, being jealous of the wicked is senseless ignorance. Why? Because their end is always death. In Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2, you don't have to turn there, but here's what the psalmist says. Don't fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Proverbs 24, we see something very similar in verses 19 and 20. Don't fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For the evildoer has no future hope and the lamp of the wicked will be snuffed out. Don't envy them. Pity them. Pray for them. So he gains a new perspective. He realizes his ignorance. And finally, in the sanctuary of God, his eyes are opened and he affirms God's goodness. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Verse 23, but I am always with you. You hold me by your right hand. Can I just pause here for a moment? I am always with you. Isn't that an incredible statement, given the journey that this man had just been on? He was a brute beast. And yet God didn't abandon him. He didn't walk away. God was there holding him, guiding him, always with him. Aren't you grateful for a God who's with us, not just through the victories, but through the failures as well? I think this is an incredible testament to the security and the preservation of God's people. Verse 24, we'll keep going. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me in the glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Here at the close of this psalmist's testimony, we see him resolutely affirm the unshakable goodness of God towards his people through this dark and difficult journey, through sorrow, envy, and doubt, what the poet comes to realize is that God truly is good. Not because he gives you health or wealth, but because he gives you himself. And that is infinitely more valuable than anything this world can offer. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This psalm is is often uh, given the genre of a wisdom psalm. But I think it also has characteristics of a lament psalm. And, And what we see frequently in the laments is that the assurance of God's goodness often shines most brightly, not in spite of difficult circumstances, but because of them. What a God who uses even dark seasons to magnify with even greater clarity the beauty and the wonder of His goodness to His people. God may not give us a child or a spouse or a cure, But God is still good because he gives us something far greater. He gives us himself. And you know, I think this side of the cross that rings with even greater clarity, doesn't it? With even surer resonance, as God has given us his son who is with us, for us, and in us. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, we see in the New Testament that there was only one righteous. And why did he suffer? He suffered for the unrighteous and he did it to bring us to God. Surely God is good to his people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this truth. I thank you that you are a good God. May we look to you and find our hope. In Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.